This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. When Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine on February the 24th, Western governments immediately condemned what they described as Vladimir Putin's war. The idea was to draw a distinction between the actions of the Kremlin and the attitudes of ordinary Russians. But ordinary Russians do appear to support Putin's war, perhaps at a level of 70% or higher. And Putin's popularity also appears to have risen, as it did after the 2014 invasion of Crimea. And this support extends to young people in Russia, the ones who are online, sophisticated users of social media, the ones you might expect to see through the Kremlin's propaganda. How has Russia managed to produce this generation of pro-war nationalists? To discuss this issue, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Ian Garner from Queen's University, Ontario, who's the author of the recently published book, Z Generation, and an expert on Russian culture and war propaganda. Ian, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, Ian, um, I've, I've had the privilege of, of getting an advanced copy of your book, and, and it's a fascinating study in particular because it introduces us to a world that is in some ways very familiar, but in other ways very foreign. And what I'm describing here are young very online Russians, people who like to use Instagram, social media, who live their lives online, who like to post images of, of their food and their exercise and their holidays. And we, we all know people like this. But these are the same people who are vociferously, almost fascistically supporting uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. So can you describe a little this sort of person that I'm talking about? Well, I think you've done a a really good job of starting us off in the sense that Russian teenagers are like teenagers anywhere, right? You know, it, it's easy to sort of um, turn Russians into monsters who are completely inhuman, but they're not, which is what makes what's happening in Ukraine so frightening for me. It's been that the violence, the, the genocide, if you want to call it that, is being carried out by ordinary people who are not much older than the subjects of my book. And so these are these are teenagers who want what the teenage kids that you know that maybe you have at home want. That is, they want to fit in. They want belonging. They spend their time on their smartphones constantly on different social media platforms, recording themselves, putting their lives online. And I would argue living a life that is an online life. And one of the most important things I want everybody to understand as we get into this and talk about this generation and maybe some of the things they might believe or that the government wants them to believe is that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I'm a millennial, when I was a bit younger, we used to talk about my social media life and things I did in real life. But nowadays, those things are one and the same. Your social media life is your real life and your real life is led to a great degree online. And that's certainly true in Russia, where internet connectivity is everywhere, even in the smallest, most remote villages. 
Smartphones are cheap, internet access is cheap, and people are addicted to social media. Perhaps at, at the heart of your book is a contention that, contrary to the what is a pretty standard view, which is that elderly Russians who watch state TV and are, if you like, provided with a traditional diet of state propaganda, they're the ones that support Putin, support the war. The youngsters who are online have access, of course, to a very, very diversified range of information sources and ultimately are generationally very different from the kind of Soviet generation that Putin himself represents, that those would be less likely to support the war. But your research basically shows that that isn't the case. It's not necessarily the case. Of course, there are a great many young Russians, and there are more young Russians than older Russians, who are vehemently opposed to what's going on in Ukraine, in Russia more broadly, who are very uncomfortable, would either much rather be completely left alone by politics, and that's a great chunk of the population. Although I think, and we could maybe get into this if you're interested, that's a bit of a cop-out and you can't really be apathetic about politics in a totalitarian society. And of course, there are many who are very eager to somehow rejoin the European world and, and find the, the sort of hopes and dreams that existed briefly in the 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union, before everything came crashing down again in 1998 with the economic crisis. What I think is the mistake that we make is firstly to assume that younger generations are always somehow inevitably moving towards democracy simply thanks to access to information. And we know that's not true because we, and we can look closer to home. We can look at the young followers of movements like QAnon, anti-vaxxers, similar sorts of very conspiracy-laden online movements, and we can we can find you've probably all got friends, family, children, brothers, cousins, who knows? And they do tend to be male in Russia, as as here, who buy into this sort of conspiracy-laden world. And the other mistake we make is to assume that the younger generation today is synonymous in terms of opinion with the millennial generation. And the millennial generation in Russia really has shown itself to be opposed to Putin more than other generations. And in the book, I dig into why that's the case a little bit. And the answer is that when Putin came to power, he promised, and this is the very first speech he made when he became acting president on 31st of December 1999, he literally promised we are moving into a world of fairy tales. The 1990s was terrible. It was catastrophic for many reasons. We're leaving it behind. We're going to live in fairy tale times. And then he promised, you know, the GDP is going to double every couple of years, whatever it was. You're going to get all the consumer goodies you want. You can go travel abroad, go work in Western Europe, study abroad, do whatever you want, then come back and there will be middle class managerial professional jobs waiting in, in Moscow or Petersburg. And the problem that the millennial generation had is that that was all well and good until the end of the 2000s, when a number of things happened. Firstly, the financial crisis hit Russia hard because the economy was never really structurally fixed. And that meant the entire economy was resting on resource prices, as it really still is today. The Arab Spring happened, which spooked Putin. And Putin believed that any protests at home might become another Arab Spring and there would be a, some sort of a, a Russian Spring and he would be overthrown. 
And thus we saw a clampdown in the early 2010s, starting at around 2012 when Putin became president for a third time. And all those hopes that millennials had of sort of gradually moving in towards freedom started to disappear. And the real turning point then became 2014 and the invasion of Crimea, which ultimately led to the Russian economy tanking and a lot of very disappointed millennials. Certainly the fairy tale was gone. So what the government is trying to do now is build up a new fairy tale for its youngest generation. There are so many fascinating aspects to this. And But one of the things I wanted to try and get a feel for is the extent to which this online information, or we might even call it disinformation, a sort of ecosystem, how much is that driven by the Russian state? And how much is it the product of the sort of chaos of the social media era? And I suppose a relevant comparison might be with North America, where, as you've mentioned, you know, there is QAnon, there's anti-vax, there's sadly a sort of virulent anti-truth movement, which has infected US politics. But it isn't necessarily driven by, by a, you know, a kind of central scheming apparatus. Is this similar in Russia or is this actually the Russian state and particularly its, its kind of security state finding a way to weaponize the online environment? It's a bit of both. And what the state does is quite ramshackle in a sense. It lays out rough boundaries of what is permissible and what is appropriate and then encourages a whole cast of true believers and paid influencers and paid programs to then spread these materials. And so the rough boundaries lie around spreading a kind of an identity of Russianness that is very clearly defined as to be a good citizen, to be a good person in Russia, to fit in in the community in order not to be excluded. You have to be adhere to very traditional gender roles. So that means, you know, masculine pursuits, joining the army, aggression for boys, and women are mostly training to be mothers who will sacrifice themselves in the name of the state, go on to work in civil service, government, in some way support war. You have to be an Orthodox Christian. And of course, I mean, a Russian Orthodox Christian, and in Russia today, the Orthodox Church is very much wrapped up in the state's militaristic projects. You have to adhere to what the state calls traditional family values, which really means a completely toxic fear of anything tinged with queerness or homosexuality. And I'm sure people will have seen the way that Russia has uh, gone downhill in that regard over the last 10 years. And also it means adhering to the idea that always there is some some other some group to blame for the failure of the Russian state to really realize the fairy tale, the utopia it promises. And so we saw in the the 2000s, the state blamed Chechens and other minority Muslim minorities from the south of Russia, from the Caucasus. Then it moved on to targeting homosexuals. Today, it's Ukrainians. But always these people are seen as or painted as a sort of diseased body. And so what the state does is it pumps out certain materials, it will drop them into the social media world, but then people can run with them. What you find when you stumble into the Russian internet, which is a parallel world with all of its own taxi hailing apps, food delivery apps, social media networks, news sites, you name it, there is a, there is a Russian version of what you're familiar with. These things are just rife 
with hundreds of social media groups, sites, blogs, telegram channels, where people can spread this information pretty freely. And you can live in an online world where you seem to be getting a plurality of opinion. But in fact, you're never perceiving the world outside at all. One element of this that I'm keen to explore with you is whether there's a sort of bridge that gets crossed into what might be called kind of blatant fascism. So what I mean is at a certain point in time, Russia seemed to specialise in denying that it was involved in certain events, in trying to portray itself as a sort of responsible member of the international community, and that it was simply sort of misunderstood. Whereas now, and, and, and you, you write about this in your book really interestingly, the, there's almost a glorifying in the event. So after the, the ghastly uh, war crimes in Butcher, you know, you, you identified the, this online sort of teenager saying, so basically celebrating and saying, I'll create another Butcher is almost as if it's something that we should be proud of. I'm actually struck. Uh, I recall that after the Moscow apartment bombings in 1999, whilst there was in some respects a cover up, there were those who who almost sort of celebrated it. There, were, there was a, a a Russian nationalist who who wrote a novel called Mister Hexogen about somebody who had carried out a series of apartment bombings, almost willing you to find them guilty, as it were. So, is is there a is there a point in time we can identify where Russia decides that it isn't trying to to sort of be a normal country anymore? That it's sort of proud of its violent fascism? I think the the roots of this. W- never really went away after the fall of the Soviet Union. And you can see the nationalism boiling over in the 1980s as the Soviet Union is beginning to move towards its end. You can see there were, for example, there were a spate of church burnings in Estonia that were linked to Russian nationalists. And there was an explosion of Russian nationalist groups of all sorts in the 1990s. And then Putin comes to power and essentially starts to harness these nationalist groups fairly early on as some pretty unsavory characters, neo-Nazis, in the name of sort of creating this vision of patriotic Russianness. But at that time, you're right, there is a bit of a reluctance to own this. It's covered up. It's never made official that these these groups of, of football hooligans and Nazis are aligned with the state. They're, they're tolerated and they are paid with you know, train tickets and goodies, pages back in the day to go and you know, beat up the homosexuals and the queers and to be out there on patriotic days and basically to cause trouble. But I think it really comes in the early 2010s with that fear of the Arab Spring, with the return to the presidency, Putin realises that you know, I'm I'm going to be president for as long as I want. Nobody can challenge me. And he genuinely does start to become more paranoid. And it's not just the Arab Spring I didn't mention earlier, but of course, he's already seen color revolutions in Ukraine in 2004 that he puts a lid on in Georgia in, was it 2003, I think, for Saakashvili, Kyrgyzstan earlier that or in that decade as well. And that's the point at which the language of sort of international norms and international collaboration really goes out the window, both in terms of foreign policy doctrine, 
but also in terms of the discourse that's happening at home, where suddenly the state starts investing really big money in creating highly patriotic, highly militaristic movies, TV shows, printing books in vast numbers that are given to children, changing school curricula, reintroducing religious education into the school curriculum. Again, not really religious education, but education about a very sort of militaristic, aggressive form of orthodoxy that is a very corrupted version of Christianity. And as as we progress through the 2010s, I think, you know, there is no turning point. But what we find is the reflection of the same kind of own-the-libs social media mentality we often see online elsewhere. And that means the introduction of... I mean, let me, let me give you an anecdote to make you understand this. There is this uh, hashtag namnistidma, we're not ashamed, that is introduced to Russian social media. And it basically means every time the West accuses us of being the bad guys... Well, that's just what the West does. They're wrong. Screw those guys. We'll just say we're not ashamed. And I watched, I couldn't write about it in the book, but I watched a really fascinating um, YouTube video by a Russian influencer who's a young guy in his, in his 20s, very, very f- popular. And this video was all about the poisoning of Navalny. And millions of views with this guy saying, this is the most fabulous thing. Of course we poison Navalny. It's what we do. He's a traitor. He's an enemy. He's on the outside. He's not one of these good Russian Orthodox macho guys. Therefore, he just got what was coming to him. That's the kind of the law of the jungle, as it were. And this just becomes more and more apparent, I think, in the youth culture, the more that I look at it. One of the things that many of us, perhaps with a slightly sort of you know, false optimism. We think that the Ukraine war is going so badly, it is likely, perhaps not directly, but indirectly to result in Putin's downfall, whether or not it's from natural causes or people's, you know, taking him to one side and saying it's time to move on. What your book seems to point to is that there there is not a generation in Russia that will say, okay, it's time to return to the fold of you know, conventional democracy, that if anything, this this sort of extreme aggressive nationalism will continue and, and there's no reason to expect it to change. Absolutely. Well, I think if you look at the way that the government is now stepping up its efforts in a really serious way that it, I don't think it has ever done before to militarise very young children through encouraging them to join paramilitary youth groups through some pretty wild propaganda materials in schools, through mandatory patriotism lessons, through deliberately cutting off more and more access to non-Russian influences on the internet. Meanwhile, holding up some of the most objectionable people in society who are killers, who encourage genocide, who embrace this sort of culture of we're not ashamed, we're out to destroy them before they destroy us. If this doesn't end pretty quickly, you're going to be left with a generation of kids who may not love Putin in the end because they may decide, well, this war in Ukraine was botched, it was done badly. But will they be opposed to the idea of the war? Possibly not. And I think one of the things that we often misinterpret about the the Russian system today is that it is not a cult of personality. 
Putin is not essential to the smooth or to the ideology of the state, because the ideology of the state is about nationhood, this, this idea of Ruski Mir, the Russian world, this sort of spiritual messianic territory that doesn't really have boundaries, but is more of a is more of a concept, is something you feel rather than something that can ever be defined. Well, that that kind of stuff is just going to roll on, even after Putin goes. And what you're going to find is you have a generation of children who believe that violence is normal, who are attached to very traditional gender roles. And, you know, the acceptance that domestic violence, for example, which I'm sure we can all agree is not acceptable, but the idea that domestic violence is somehow permissible has become the norm for most of Russian society. Not in certain sections of the liberal metropolitan population in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but around the country, these sorts of beliefs hold firm. And also, and we haven't touched on this, the cult of World War II, the idea that Russia is somehow constantly under threat from the outside, that Russia has to sacrifice itself, that the country goes through difficult periods of turmoil and death in order to renew itself, which sounds very abstract. But this is probably the most widely held equivalent to a religious belief in Russia today. And all of these things are just going to tick on regardless of who are, who is in power. So I guess as a, a final question, is the appropriate response of Western countries just to try to contain Russia as much as possible to have a put a really high sanctions wall around it? Or is there anything to be done about this? I think, yes, it starts with isolating Russia in the sense that Russia can't be simply admitted back into the, the liberal fold, that clearly the policies of allowing it to develop economically and democratically and hoping that, that would uh, somehow stave off its militarism that were conducted throughout the 1990s and 2000s, that was, that was misguided, that was a failure, and we can't attempt that policy again. We also have to make sure that Ukraine wins. Nothing will be more damaging to this project of ideologization of the youth than Russia getting an absolute bloody nose as it's driven out of Ukraine. But there are things that we can do now. The good news is that Russia's social media defenses, its cybersecurity defenses, are extremely weak. It doesn't have the technological capacity, the money or the expertise to be able to keep us out of its networks. And so if its children are highly online, and we want to educate them away from embracing a form of nationality that is highly violent, then we can be in their social media networks. We can be spreading messages that encourage not just an abstract form of peace, which is a bit sort of wishy-washy and may achieve nothing, but advocating to create a new form of Russian nationality in which to be Russian means rejecting violence. To be Russian means embracing a real version of Orthodox Christianity, which of course should on paper be peaceful, not militaristic. These sorts of projects are cheap, they're relatively easy to run, and there's almost no downside. Russia already believes we're doing them. The Russian state media already tells its public that we are constantly engaging in all sorts of nefarious CIA cyber ops conspiracies. So we can just do them anyway. And the good news for us is that we have the power of truth on our side. We don't have to lie to Russia. We don't have to lie to young Russians. 
we can simply show them different ways of being, different ways of in- existing, and reintroduce that sort of pluralism of identity into their society. Ian, I think that's a perfect place to finish this interview. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Ian's book, Z Generation, published by Hearst, is widely available and a fascinating read. Thank you very much for having me. I hope you all enjoy the book. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Arthur Snell. Thanks for joining me in the bunker. Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers, Kasia Tomashevich, Chris Jones, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.